morning. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 4. This is the inerrant part of our service. As we read Scripture together, Psalm chapter 4. Before I read, I want to say a special word of gratitude to our associational missionary and his dear wife, uh, John and Anita. We are so thankful for you here at Mill Springs. Let's give him a hand, please. The Lord used our dear brother in the life of this church when we desperately needed him. And I hope we'll never forget it. We're so grateful to uh, John, for you, your ministry, what you're doing in the association, and we thank God for you. Pray that the Lord gives you many more years at it. Thank you, brother. All right, we're going to read from Psalm chapter 4. We'll do Psalm 4 and then Psalm 5, and we'll go to our New Testament reading. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell safely. Psalm 5. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you have heard my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. 
and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with a favor as with a shield. Now let's go to the New Testament, to 1 John chapter 2, picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, beginning at verse 15. 1 John 2.15. By the way, if these are hard to find for you, use the concordance, uh, the table of contents, I mean, in the front of your Bible. That'll help to locate these books. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we uh, prepare to pray this morning, I, uh, I want to acknowledge our dear brother Jim Kane uh, on the passing of his granddaughter Ashley uh, this week. Suddenly, we are so heartbroken for you, brother Jim, and for all your family. And We want you to know we're praying for you, and we love you very much. So let's join, shall we, church family, and pray together. Father, we come to you acknowledging that we are unworthy, that we are sinful, that we are foolish and so easily led astray. 
When we look at ourselves, we see nothing of which to be proud. But we see inconsistency. We see vileness. We see a great need. But when we look away from ourselves to the Savior that you sent, we see in Him worth. We see in Him beauty. We see in Him majesty, compassion, strength, and help. And so, Father, we come this morning not to look inward, but by Your grace to look outward, to see Him who bore our shame and bore our guilt, so that through His sacrifice for us, We can have peace with You and acceptance with You. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for His love. Thank You for His patience. Thank You that He never lets us go. Father, we pray that You would send Your Holy Spirit to Jim and to his family and comfort them in what they're going through. We ask, Father, that you would use us as a church to love this family and stand with them, to mourn with them, and to try to help them however we can. Father, thank you that in the darkest day, you're there for us. Be near to Jim and Taylor and all the rest of the family. Thank you, Lord, for our Savior Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who loses none of his sheep. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning uh, we actually spent... Uh, the morning discussing the 23rd Psalm and kind of breaking that down. And pastor's prayer just went right along with what we were talking about this morning. And um, we, we spent some time camping out on the verse that said, He leaves me on paths of righteousness for His namesake. And, um, you know, I did some research. And the word for paths there indicates a, a well-worn path, almost like a rut. And so I typed in, I wanted to see what uh, words of wisdom the world had to say about well-worn paths. So I just, I just Googled uh, well-worn paths and, and hit after hit came up and uh, most of them negative, you know, saying, oh, well-worn path indicates, you know, people are just in a rut and relying on tradition and, and whatnot. And so I got to thinking about that and thinking about our Savior as a shepherd and how he leads us and you know if you go through the 23rd psalm it says he leads us beside still waters and i didn't know this but did you know that sheep will not drink they tend not to drink from a fast-moving stream so the shepherd has to dam up the water they're so dumb that if they were dying of thirst they would you know if the water's moving too fast no no i'd rather die but the shepherd patiently will dam up that that brook or whatnot so the sheep can can drink from that And so I was thinking about the ways that the Lord leads. And so I I posed a question, and I pose it to you all to to think about. I have to think about this myself. That as we 
are following, hopefully following the Lord, our shepherd, what would we, how would we assess the, the path that he takes for our lives, the path he chooses to lead us, lead us on? And I got to thinking about that, and I think, you know, how oftentimes would we look in the distance and say, I see green grass right, just right there. Why are we going like this, Lord? And we doubt his goodness and his omniscience and think that I'm just a little bit smarter. I, you're going, that way looks way too rocky, and I don't know. I, I think this straight shot right here is going to be better. And so we got to look and say, what does Scripture have to say about the paths that different people have taken in Scripture that, that the Lord allowed them to travel? Was David's path to kingship and as a history of Israel's greatest king an easy one? I'm sure he wouldn't thought, you know what, I probably need to spend a lot of time in caves and wake him up every day uh, for fear of my life. That's probably going to be good training for me. I'm going to go down that path. Would that be the path David would choose for himself? I don't think so. What about uh, uh, the, you know, the Israelites getting led out of Egypt? Uh, the distance they had to travel was not that far. Would they choose to go in circles for 40 years? Probably not. But did they need it? Apparently so. And so I think about how our Lord uh, directs us, even me. You know, I think about um, the paths I've taken in life, some that I probably chose of my own accord, but the Lord allowed me to go that way. And then in due time, he shows up with that shepherd's hook and gently leads me back on that path. And he knows it's going to be hard. There's going to be times where I'm like, why are we on this one? This one's, this one's hard. <laughs> I wanted an easier path. But in his goodness and sovereignty, he knows the destination he's taking his children. And we need to trust in that. So this morning, as we're singing Fairest Lord Jesus, I hope that this is true in my own life and in yours, that he truly is fairer than the fairest of ten thousands, lovelier than all I've ever seen, brighter than the brightest star in heaven. Jesus, you're everything to me. Let's stand and sing. Oh, oh, oh. 
dearest of ten thousand, lovelier than all I've ever seen. You are brighter than the brightest star in heaven. Jesus, you're everything to me. Jesus, you're everything to me. There is a sunshine, there is still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines of ten thousand lovelier than all I've ever seen you are brighter than the brightest star in heaven Jesus you're everything to me Jesus you're everything to me sing one more time you are brighter than the brightest of ten thousand Lovelier than all I've ever seen. You are brighter than the brightest star in heaven. Jesus, you're everything to me. Jesus, you're everything to me. Beautiful Savior, Lord. Son of God and Son of Man. Glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and I make a declaration of uh, my own weakness and that father my love for you is not as I want it to be and father I do pray try to pray every day and I pray that all of us here pray the prayer that you would help us father to be men and women children after your own heart as you said of David even more so of your son Jesus our savior and father I pray that you would instill in us the love for you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a love for our neighbor as ourselves. That is the tenet of the law summed up into two great commands that our Lord gave us. Father, help us to be a people of love and of truth. We love you, Father. We so look forward to the coming of our Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. You can be seated. All right, we continue now our brand new exposition of
1 Corinthians that we've entitled Paul's plea to a church on a ledge. And by that we mean a church that was in great spiritual danger. So will you find 1 Corinthians in your Bible. And let's see today God large and in charge. That is my title for this sermon. In prepping this sermon, I came across a former professor of mine on YouTube. His name is Dr. Reggie Kidd. I had not seen Dr. Kidd in decades. He was a professor of mine in uh, Florida uh, in 1990 to 91, and uh, he had not aged hardly any. I just was astonished when I saw him. I wish I knew his secret. On the video, he made a telling comment about the ancient city of Corinth. He said this, Corinth did seem to be particularly exotic when it came to the sin scale. And I thought to myself, well, now that's a rather interesting way of saying it. Corinth did seem to be particularly exotic when it came to the sin scale. What sin exotica, if you will, is he referring to? Well, you had in Corinth sexual immorality, sexual perversion, covetousness, stealing, drunkenness, gluttony, pride, abusive speech, and swindling, just to name some of the sins. If you really want to know what Corinth was like, you just need to go read Romans 1. In fact, why don't we do that real quickly? Hold your place at 1 Corinthians 1 and turn over to Romans 1. And then I'm going to tell you why I wanted to read this. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Listen to this. Paul says, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Come on, Paul, tell us what you really think. Now, guess where he was when he wrote that? He was in Corinth. In fact, he may have been looking out his door. When he listed all these sins, because as we heard last Sunday, Corinth was the New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world all rolled into one. Mayor notes with the Isthmian Games in Corinth came an emphasis on luxury and profligacy because Poseidon's sanctuary was given over to the worship of the Corinthian Aphrodite whose temple on the Acro-Corinth was once purported to have had more than a 1,000 female prostitutes in the pre-Roman era. The Greek language even developed a verb based off the proper noun Corinth, which meant to live like a Corinthian in the practice of sexual immorality. And prior ads, even long-haired male prostitutes were common in Corinth. So yes, Corinth was particularly exotic on the sin scale. Tragically so, in fact. Because it didn't take the church in Corinth long until they found themselves out on this ledge in danger of plummeting from the gospel Paul preached. Now, the question is, how'd they get out there on that ledge? And the answer is, they got out there on that ledge the same way churches are getting on the ledge today. In shocking numbers. They got there by absorbing their culture, by mirroring their culture, by embracing the culture and the world around them. They were enamored with that world. They were enthralled with the ethos of the day. As though the Bible never says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Ellsworth writes, only the church of Jesus Christ had the medicine Corinth's sick society needed. But sadly, the true physician's were themselves down with the disease. Instead of their influencing Corinth for Christ, Corinth had influenced them, and the sins of society had cropped up in the church. Does that sound familiar? The sins of society cropping up in the church? Now, brothers and sisters, we have to fight this with all of our might. We have to stay vigilant because the sins of society will creep up, crop up in this church. Jesus said, watch and pray, right? 
that you may not enter into temptation. Why? For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Be sober-minded, Peter said. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. As a kid, I grew up in Newmarket near the Holston River. One of the things I used to love to do was go down to that river, take sticks and throw it in the river and watch the current take those sticks and run them down away from me. I thought that was so cool. Couldn't see the current, but I knew when I threw that stick in there, boom, it hit it and go. Listen, that's exactly what the current of the world will do to churches. It'll carry them off. It will sweep them out of sight if they're not extremely careful. And listen, it'll do it to you and it'll do it to me. That's why Paul says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's why he warns Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Brothers and sisters, the danger of churches absorbing the culture is real. I saw a video this week, before we get into our text, I saw a video this week of a large church in Florida that actually worshipped with a Halloween theme in the service. The worship leaders were all dressed up like the characters from the Adams family. And this is the worship service. And so out on the platform walk, I guess you call them the MCs. I don't know what they were. But she introduces herself as Morticia. He introduces himself as, uh, she, and then she introduces him as Uncle Fester. And he says, no, no, I'm, I'm Uncle Fester's younger brother, Uncle Fezzi, he said. And they go on with this. They welcome the audience to their spooktacular weekend which among other acts in worship featured nine, what, what was the little, the little girl in the Adams family? What was her name? Wednesday. Wednesday. I thought it was Friday. It's Wednesday. Okay. What? Wrong movie? I don't know. They had nine of these creepy little Wednesdays. And they were all dressed, you know, all, all of them were dressed exactly the same, doing this synchronized dance to this creepy music. And there's purple haze, you know, because of the, they got fog machines and they got the, the lighting, you know. You say, yeah, I bet people loved it. Yeah, the people that were there seemed to love it. The question is, what did God think of it? I don't have to wonder because I can turn like to Hebrews 12:28 and I can read therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe why for our God is a consuming fire 
You see why I'm saying watch out for the danger of embracing, absorbing the culture that's around you. Because you do that and it'll lead you straight into idolatry. Nothing good can come from the culture for the church. Because the culture is in the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13 The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Galatians 1.4 Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's why James can be so pointed in James 4.4 and say, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see how serious this is? Keep off the ledge is what I'm trying to say. Keep off the ledge. There's nothing the world has that the church needs. It's the other way around. And we can't forget it. Let's see it now as we take a look at just the opening part of Paul's salutation to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1.1 where he shows us God large and in charge. We see God large and in charge in these beginning words, and that's all we're going to look at. We see God large and in charge in four ways. First, in Paul's history. First verse, first word, unless you're using the NLT, which totally uh, scrambles the the verse. Paul, do you see that in your translation? First verse, first word. A Greek name derived from the Latin surname Paulus in Hebrew, it's Saul. After the famous first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. Now listen to this. Paul, actually born as Saul, was born in Tarsus in Cilicia around AD 1 to 5. In the southeastern corner of modern-day Turkey, he was of Benjamite lineage and Hebrew ancestry. His parents were Pharisees, fervent Jewish nationalists who adhered strictly to the law of Moses, who sought to protect their children from contamination from the Gentiles. Anything Greek would have been despised in Saul's household, yet he could speak Greek and Latin. His household would have spoken Aramaic a derivative of Hebrew, which was the official language of Judea. Saul's family were Roman citizens. At age 13, Saul went to Judea to learn from the famous and well-respected Rabbi Gamaliel, under whom Saul mastered Jewish history, the Psalms, and the works of the prophets. His education continued for five or six years. He then went on to become a lawyer, and all signs pointed to his one day becoming a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court of 71 men who ruled over Jewish life and religion. Saul was zealous for his faith, and this faith allowed for no compromise. It was this zeal that led him down the path 
of persecuting those who were called Christians. That's his history. Now, can you see already God large and in charge in Paul's history? How Paul's early training, his mastery of the Psalms and the prophets, his his ability in languages, even his persecution of the church, would all be gathered up by the Lord to be put to positive use for the cause of Christ. Now, I bet if you looked at your own personal history, you'd see that God is large and in charge of it too. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing in your life has been a fluke because God is large and he is in charge. I heard about a man who came to faith in Christ late in life and he so wanted to be used of God. But here he was as all of his best years had been washed away by the folly of his sin. Now he's an old man and what can he do? But that wasn't the worst of it. This man was illiterate had never learned to read. But he so wanted to be used of the Lord. He had found the joy of the Lord in his heart and in his life, his salvation. You know what he did? He went and he got gospel tracts and he started going door to door. Only he wasn't reading it to them. He'd knock on the door. They'd open it. He'd say, uh, uh, I have never learned to read. Now, he's an elderly man, mind you. I've never learned to read. Would you read this to me? And there were all kinds of people who were exposed to the gospel by an elderly man who could not himself read. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, that's God large and in charge in Paul's History, second in Paul's calling, first verse, second word, Paul called, called. Now, you know, sometimes when we try to get someone's attention, we'll, we'll kind of go uh, j- just gently, yoo-hoo, over here, you know. And that's not this. When Paul says he's called, He's talking about an authoritative summons. He has been divinely sent for. Paul had been going about his life, dead set on stopping Christians dead in their tracks, when heaven suddenly stopped him and hailed him, called him, and there was no missing it. There was no mistaking it. This was God at work in his life. Look over at Acts chapter 9 real quickly. We won't read all of it, but just part. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Let Paul tell you. You can judge for yourself. This was not a yoo-hoo. This was an authoritative summons. Paul's call. We read in Acts 9.1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, 
so that if he found any belonging to the way and early designation of Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Paul didn't call himself to know Jesus and preach Jesus, did he? Oh, no, listen, left to his own will, Paul would never have called himself to know and preach Jesus. Why? He despised Jesus. He didn't want to make him further known, did he? He wanted to make him unknown. He wanted to make him never known. He intended to strangle the infant church in its crib breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Acts 9.1. But then suddenly, Acts 9.3, a light from heaven shone around him and a voice came down and Saul went down flat on the ground. Y'all ever listen to J. Vernon McGee on the radio? Oh, I love J. Vernon McGee. He said, I, I wish I could do his accent. You know, he's from Texas. Texas, wasn't he? He said, Christ waylaid Paul on the Damascus road. I like that. He waylaid him. He ambushed him. But listen, in a good way. In a glorious way. Because later Paul testifies in 1 Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. See, that's how He described it. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. I'll never forget my dear brother, Ed Lacey. You remember Ed from several years ago. Ed, before he passed, he came here and he taught us on evangelism, taught us on the Sermon on the Mount. No, it was prayer. He taught us on prayer. Brother Ed, you know, here's this man. He, his own testimony, I was a drunken jazz rock drummer. All he would do is play his music. He was really good on the drums from what I hear. But he'd play his Drums every night getting drunk. One night he, well, before that, you know, his, his wife becomes a Christian, Diane becomes a Christian, and oh, he said, I hated it. I hated what she had become. 
and he said, I used to mock her faith and just verbally just degrade her and tear her down over her faith. So he comes home one night after he's played, you know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning. He plops down on the couch. He's a miserable man. He's empty on the inside. He's lost. He has no purpose. Flips on the television and there's a preacher. You know this is God. There's a preacher on there preaching enough gospel that he actually hears the gospel. And Ed said, suddenly I sat up on the edge of that couch and I said, I know him. That's the power of God. That's the call of God. That's the work of God. That's God large and in charge. Friend, do you know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Do you know that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him? Did you know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved? Did you know David Dixon? Oh, I love David Dixon, one of the old writers. He said you can take all your bad deeds and put them on a heap, and then you can take all of your good deeds and put them on the same heap and then run away from that heap into the arms of Jesus and die in peace. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord, come to my Savior today. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter. Come lonely heart to the outsider's friend. To Jesus who seeks out the lost, your cruel seclusion has come to an end. Find welcome, find home at the cross. No soul is too small for His mercy. No sin is too great for His grace. Come, lonely heart, to the outsider's friend. Find welcome, find home at the cross. That's God. Large and in charge, first in Paul's history, second in his calling. And now third, in God's will. First verse, third through seventh words in the ESV. You say, Greg, at this pace, none of us will live long enough to study chapter three. <laughs> I wish I could speed it up, friends, but... We'll, uh, we're aiming it, trying to be faithful to the Word. The next phrase in verse 1 reinforces Paul's calling. Can you see it? How does it reinforce it? Listen, notice, called by the will of God. That's the origin of Paul's calling. God's inexorable, unstoppable, gracious purpose for Paul's life. Paul didn't call himself. He didn't appoint himself. Peter didn't appoint Paul. John didn't appoint him. James didn't. No man, no church, 
No church council appointed Paul, but extraordinarily, through special revelation from heaven, Paul was called according to God's purpose. No merit in Paul, no worth in Paul, just the free grace, the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. Bible Christian, will you listen to Paul for me in Galatians chapter 1? Turn over there quickly, Galatians chapter 1. We're moving fast. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Bible Christian, will you listen to Paul? Galatians 1.11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me, there it is, by his grace, Paul didn't deserve this. He didn't earn it. Was pleased to reveal his son to me. That's when Paul sat up on the edge of his couch and he said, I know him. See what I mean? Why did he do this? In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I I went away elsewhere. That's God large and in charge in Paul's history, his calling, and God's will. And then last, in Paul's apostleship. Now look back over at 1 Corinthians 1, final phrase about Paul in verse 1. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. A sent one, a commissioned envoy of the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. Paul was an apostle because he had seen the risen Christ. He had been commissioned by Christ to preach and help lay the foundation of the church. His ministry was marked by miraculous authentication and by the obedience of genuine spirit-filled Christians As Edwards aptly put it, Paul was called out of the world to be sent into the world with the gospel. And that was to the shock and awe of just everybody. He says in Galatians, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. 
Paul's extraordinary call to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. God, large and in charge in Paul's history, his calling in God's will and in Paul's apostleship. And all that's just in the opening words, a dozen words or so of 1 Corinthians. Now let me ask you as I close, do you know this God? I'm not talking about this little helpless God uh, that uh, whose name gets invoked at the spectacular worship service. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the God of the Bible. The big God, the powerful God, the almighty God. Do you know him? The God who sent his son, whom he loved. He sent his one and only son into the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, you need him this morning. You need a God that's this big, the puny one. Forget it. He's he's an idol. No, this God, the Bible God, that's the God you and I need. I have a friend named Ben who uh, posted this yesterday online. And it reminded me of how great our needs are. And I wonder if it might speak to, to one of you. Ben said, sorry for asking so much from all of you, but can I ask three specific prayer requests today? First, could we ask God to save my father-in-law if he doesn't belong to Christ? He wrote a very encouraging message about being at peace with God that he believes and he's ready. Second, that I would have the words to proclaim Christ to him. I struggle at times with the right things to say, especially in these circumstances. Finally, they are pulling the ventilator out again today at his request. When they did that Wednesday, he coded within 10 minutes. He knows that it is the likely outcome today and has told them not to resuscitate him if that happens. We know that God can do whatever he wants and that this is in his sovereign control. Please pray that God would allow my father-in-law to continue to have his heart work and give him a little more time with us. I went uh, this morning right before I came in here and checked. There was no update, so I don't know. Friends, every one of us, if Jesus tarries, every one of us is headed this direction. You realize that? And every one of us needs a God who is large and who is in charge and who can reach down and take the little lamb that's frightened and guard that little lamb and see that little lamb all the way safely to the green pasture of eternal heaven. You see, Christ can... Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. You need Him. I need Him. This is the God who is 
Our needs are great. We need a great God. He's the only God who is. So come trust Him. Trust Him. Call on Him. Right where you're seated. You don't need to walk down carpet. Call on Him. Let's pray. Father, please.